Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, today we need your Son. Lord, your entire word is given to us to show us Christ. He who is the rock of ages. Father, we thank you that by turning to him in faith, we are saved from wrath. But Father, we also look to recognize that as we are saved from wrath, we are also to be seeking to be made pure in Christ. Lord, we live in a world full of darkness and confusion. We live in a world that to our eyes seems so strange. Father, help us today through the ministry of your word, the work of your spirit, to provide guidance for us. Father, may we come to your word today and lay down any preconceived notions. May we lay down any thoughts that we bring to your word today. And may we just listen to what you have for us. May we seek guidance and wisdom from you Wisdom that is from above, that is pure and peaceable. Father, may we look to take the eternal truths of your word, apply them to our lives, and be transformed more into the image of your Son. Father, work in our midst as only you can. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, as I had mentioned, uh, we're sort of taking a little bit, one week break between our study of the uh, Petrine epistles, the first and second Peter. And I think as I was just praying, it just occurred to me that what we're going to be looking at today is helpful as also a summary of what we looked at in first Peter. First Peter is written to sojourners, to exiles, to those who do not belong. And what we see Paul mentioning here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 really lines up perfectly with what we saw in 1 Peter. And so the question that I'd like us to consider today is who are we or who am I? And particularly, this is the dilemma of our current age. Now, uh, I, many of you know, I went to a conference a couple weeks ago, and this sermon is part of the fruits of that conference. That conference was on the topic of personhood. And of course, it was addressed from a number of different angles. But I think it was a necessary and needed conference. It was helpful for me because we live in a world today where the idea of human personhood is under attack. Our world is grappling with some of the most fundamental questions that face humanity. And that struggle is working its way out in the public sphere. All you have to do is turn on CNN, Fox News, ABC, CBS, to go online to read a newspaper, and these questions about what it means to be a human being are forefront in our society. You cannot run from it. You cannot escape it. It's everywhere. 
It also seems that things are changing at a breakneck speed. Now, of course, we shouldn't gauge our society based solely upon legislations that's passed, but it is telling. In 1996, 17 years ago, if my math is correct, and it could be wrong because I'm terrible at math, but 17 years ago, there was the passage of what was called the Defense of Marriage Act. And the Defense of Marriage Act federally defined marriage between, as being between a man and a woman. 17 years ago. Is that the reality today? No. And so in 17 years, we've seen such change in our society here in America. The law of the, uh, the um, Defense of Marriage Act, what was known as DOMA, was vacated by the 2013 Supreme Court decision of Oberfeld versus Hodges. And then last year, it was officially repealed by Congress with the so-called Respect for Marriage Act. Now, while the cultural turmoil has began in marriage today, even some of the most basic questions regarding human identity are being discussed. Society is seeking to define or redefine human sexuality, gender, And there are even discussions regarding what is called transhumanism and even transspeciation. Now, if you're not familiar with those terms, transhumanism is the idea of applying technology to the human body to extend our lives and or to increase the 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 uh, the the value of our lives or the experience of our lives. Um, One particular artist Uh, I can't remember his name. I was reading an article about this, but uh, he is the first and only officially recognized cyborg by a government. The government of London issued him a visa or a a passport because he has an appendage that he calls an organ that is a, uh, it is an electronic device and, and a diode that comes out of his skull so he can see things in different ways. It's really, really strange stuff. Also, the idea of transspeciation. There's an article I read this week from a news organization called Vice. Vice is a very, very left-leaning news organization. And they were talking about the idea of transspeciation. And they were particularly discussing and interviewing individuals from Australia. This is a quote from someone they, they interviewed in that article. This person's name is Rivera. Rivera writes, I feel my selfhood to be discreet from this body. It is not inherently me. It's just a vehicle I'm operating. And then he asks this question. Plus, what does it mean to be human anyway? The article goes on, says this. Rivera identifies as a dragon. He decided this 15 years ago while having what he describes as prophetic dreams of a past life. As an otherkin, he is one of hundreds of Australians who identify as another species, whether from earth or myth. Now, we hear that and gawk. How can that be? And this is not somebody who's just living in an alternate reality or is is seeking to have some sort of second life this is what he says he is his identity is wound up in being a dragon and so the definition of humanity from cradle to the grave is being discussed in the public square and everyone's chiming in 
You've got politicians and pollsters, theologians and physicians, philosophers and psychologists. Everyone is weighing in regarding the most fundamental question of who we are as humans. Now, this is nothing new. We need to recognize that these type of questions have been asked and struggled with throughout really the history of mankind. But today it seems that even agreed upon norms that go across various philosophical and even religious traditions are now in question. So much so that if we were to ask a simple question in the world today, if I were to go on CNN or if I were to go on Fox News or if I were to go on some of these major cable networks and just ask the question, what is a woman? There would be howls. How could I ask such a, such a hateful question? It brings all sorts of forms of baggage and emotional responses. So, that type of reality certainly makes us feel more like strangers and foreigners, does it not? And the question that we need to answer is, how are we as Christians to respond to this current cultural situation? How do we make sense of these things? And then furthermore, and I think this is more towards the point of the reality, how would you respond if a friend came to you and began questioning these fundamental aspects of humanity. How would you respond if someone came to you, a family member, a child, and said that they no longer identify as the gender which they were born as? How would you respond? Thankfully, praise be to our glorious Lord. He does not leave us in the dark when it comes to these questions. His word provides clear guidance for us. Now, we have to recognize that living in a world like this is disorienting. It is concerning. And let's just be honest, it's tempting to go along with the crowd. It can be tempting to want to not have to deal with the conflict and the issues of the world in which we live in today. It can be tempting to seed and agree to some extent with what they're saying, particularly as we join ourselves with a flood of justice for the oppressed. But what Paul calls us to recognize here is that only identity in Christ will provide direction in this darkened world. And so the, the call for us is that you must find your identity in Christ for direction in this darkened world. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I just want to give a little bit of a, an introduction to where we are in this book. Now, this is the second letter that Paul has written to the church at Corinth. It's a much more positive tone than the first one. The first letter is awful in many regards. He takes, in many senses, he takes Corinth out behind the woodshed and gives them a good whooping because they have been filling themselves with all sorts of evil and and sinful activities. He still has some straightening out to do in 2 Corinthians, but it's a much more positive tone. And he begins by describing some of the difficulties and sufferings that he himself has placed for the sake of the gospel. But then he says this in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. As he's dealing with these difficulties, he says, Thanks be to God who in Christ, how often? 
always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him where? Everywhere. For we are the aroma of who? Of Christ. To God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? It is here where Paul begins to establish what a renewed humanity looks like. Now I think it's important to note his confidence. Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Isn't that a wonderfully hopeful truth? This world is topsy-turvy, but Christ will always win. And that gives us great hope. Even as we labor and, and suffer in this world, Christ always wins. And then, how does He do that? He chooses to use us who are the aroma of Christ, the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. That's what we're to be spreading. And then he says of how that reaction is going to be. To those who are being saved, we are the fragrance of life to life. That we as Christians should expect other Christians to rejoice and come before us and, and, and find commonality and unity in the Spirit. That we encourage each other because we are alive in Christ. But to the world, how will they respond to us? We only remind them that their lives are heading from death to death. Then in chapter 3, Paul speaks more clearly about this distinction for the believer. He speaks of how they are freed to come to God's Word by the Spirit and to discern and behold the glory of God in Christ. As the writer of Hebrews tells us that God has described himself and spoke through the prophets. And in these, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, who is the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and Christ is the exact imprint of his nature. Now that's going to become significant once we get into chapter 4. He's the one who's upholding the universe by the word of his power. And after he pure, made purification for our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So that is who we see in Scripture. And as we see him in Scripture, we all with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into what? The same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So I want to show you how Paul is ramping into a discussion of what it means to be a person as God has designed you. What does it mean to be a human? And for the redeemed, for those who look to Christ, it means to be like Him. That that is what we are designed to be. And that brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, so on the basis of what he said, really building up to this, but particularly what is said in chapter 3, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose what? Heart. The first thing we see is this, the fact that we do not lose heart. Listen, 
This is where we must begin. We do not lose heart. This world looks so strange. And the strangeness of the world, the degradation of our society, the things that are so fundamental to who we are as human beings that are now being questioned, we can look at that and we can think, man, is anything good happening? We can give up on this world, but that's not what Paul does. He does not lose heart. Again, reminded of the truth that we all, we all are always led about in a victorious procession in Christ. So the immediate application of that is don't lose your heart. And then we see him looking to not the behavior of the world, but to his own behavior. He's not losing hearts. So look at verse 2. What does Paul do? We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. The temptation that we can face when we're faced with a world that is so clearly denying the most basic aspects of what it means to be a human being, the temptation can be to fight fire with fire, to adapt the tactics and the strategies of the world in our defense of the truth. And we can take those tactics and, and use them in an unfruitful way to try to prove a point. Now listen, politicians, philosophers, even well-meaning Christians have justified disgraceful, underhanded ways in the way that they respond to the world's rejection of personhood. There is no room for hatred, violence, or unrestrained anger. That is not to be a part of the Christian's response. Nor are we to use tricky, underhanded tactics. We're not to trick people into things. And as we're going to see, that even depends on the way in which we use God's Word. My fear is that many Christians, in contending for what is basic, or at least used to be basic, end up denying the respect and dignity due to the persons who are caught up in the darkness of the world. We cannot adapt disgraceful and underhanded ways. But then we see, first of all, how do we respond? Well, Paul gives us four things. And the first thing that we do is that we find identity in Christ by allegiance to God's Word. Look at what he says at the rest of verse 2. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The first thing we see is that allegiance to God's Word must be sincere. It must be sincere. After re rejecting the adoption of the world's tactics, Paul says in verse 2 that he is going to not practice cunning. The idea here is craftiness or trickery in handling God's Word. Now, it can be tempting here for the sake of the cause to misapply and to misuse God's Word. 
and to do it in such a way that we are rallying for the right cause, but we're doing it by abusing God's word. I mean, we know that the Bible is clear on these issues, right? And it is. But we must not engage in taking God's word and making it say things that it does not. I think what particularly becomes the application of this for us today is we tamper with God's word when we make its application all about them and not about us. The reality that we're going to see that Paul's going to point to is that, yes, these things that we're seeing in society are wrong and cut at the fundamental aspects of what it means to be a human, but so does every other sin. And so we need to not tamper with God's word to the effect that it's only about the problems out there and never about the problems in here. We have to recognize that we cannot justify our own self-righteousness with statements like, well, I'm not X, and then enter into cultural conversations and debates about the, the, the merits of one way of living and the, and the demerits of another way of living. Listen, who cares about your self-righteousness? And Paul's going to cut through all of that in this passage. But while on the one hand, we must not tamper by not letting God's word permeate our own hearts, we also must not tamper with God's word by being permissive about what God clearly forbids. On one extreme, everything can become about these questions, homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion. But on the other, we can seek to de-emphasize what God's word says. We can seek it would be easier to listen to the rationale of unbelievers as they interpret God's word and tell you God didn't really say that. Or did God really say? Where have we heard that terminology before? In the garden when the devil tempted Adam and Eve. And so we have to recognize that we're not tampering with God's word. We must stand firm on the truth of his word regardless of what the society says about it. So we must be sincere with our use of God's word. It's not a tool to puff up our self-righteousness. At least I'm not X. And it also is not a tool to justify what God condemns. We must be sincere. And that is what Paul says. He refuses to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. And then the second thing we see Paul pointing out is, but by... The open statement of the truth. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The second thing we see is that allegiance to God's word must be evident. Paul speaks of the open statement of the truth. This is the foundation for his own commendation to the believers in Corinth in God's sight. Why should the believers in Corinth listen to what Paul is saying? Why should should these letters have authority over him? And of course, later on in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul argues for his apostolic authority, which he has from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does that because it establishes that what he's writing is not very indeed the word of God. But here he comes to them and says, listen, I'm going to tell you the truth. 
And he lays down the standard by which he is to be judged. And that is the word of God. He's not tampering with it, but he openly states what it says. He openly states what it says. Now, I think it's important for us to recognize that as we engage in these cultural issues, as we live in a society that is denying the very fundamentals of what it means to be a human being, that we give them the right reason why we stand against these things. It is not the views of a political movement. We don't stand against these things because it is part of our particular political party's platform. I hate the fact that the church in America has merged politics and the gospel. There's no place for that. That is not an open statement of the truth. It secondly is not the arguments of philosophical conclusions. We don't stand against these things simply because human wisdom clearly points to issues on the other side. Listen, there are some, there's some really strong, great arguments being made by unbelievers about the problems with the world's headlong jump into these things. There are guys that I listen to, I'm like, wow, that's a really good point. But that is not ultimately the reason why we believe that these things are wrong. We also don't let our own sense of right and wrong be the thing that guides us. Listen, we don't stand against these things because they are unsavory to our sensibilities. We also must turn away discriminatory tendencies. We don't stand against these things because People who get caught up in this rebellion make us uncomfortable. We don't want anything to do with them. We don't want to be around them. We've got to stop that type of thinking. And we certainly do not engage in our defense of what is humanity because we hate those who, view, who are caught up in these things. Hatred for those who are caught up in this is never expect, acceptable even when they level unfair accusations at us. We must never hate them. So what is the standard? God's Word. Why do we stand against these things? It's very simple. Listen, when you're asked questions about why you view things this way, and, and when you're labeled as phobic about any of these things, the answer is to say, it's not that. Let me show you what God's Word says. That needs to be what we stand upon and fall upon. And remember, if we're standing on the Word of God, which points us to Christ, God in Christ always leads us in what? Triumph! So we must stand on God's Word. Now, here's the reality that Paul's now going to point to. The world in which we live will not see it that way. As we stand for what God's Word says, the world in which we live will not agree with us. They will continue to push against the truth of God's Word. As we make this an open statement of truth, they will distort, twist, and malign what God has revealed. 
Now, here's the thing we have to recognize. What is going on with our world that something that is so clear, so basic to the foundational truths of personhood can be so obscured and distorted by the world? There are horrific things that are being proposed out there. And you look at that, how in the world could anyone hold to these things? Physicians talking about standards of care that mutilate children. What's going on? And that's where we see, secondly, we find identity in Christ by rejecting the blindness of the devil. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. He makes a statement that is absolutely true, even if our gospel is veiled. In other words, there are going to be people who do not see the gospel, do not see this open statement of truth. In fact, the world that it, the word that's used there for veiled has the idea of being buried. Now, I don't know if you've ever been, I mean, hopefully you've not been buried underneath the ground. But I remember as a kid, my cousin, who was a few years older than me, used to torture me, and she used to pile all sorts of blankets and stuff on top of me, and then she would sit on me. And it wasn't a very enjoyable experience. And in that time, I couldn't see anything. I did survive, obviously. That's what Paul is saying. Listen, the, the, the glorious gospel of Christ is veiled to people. And that's where we have to recognize that we should expect blindness in the world. Listen, when I, when I mentioned about what is being proposed by doctors regarding the mutilation of children in regards to these things, many of you shook your heads and couldn't believe it. This is what we should be expecting. Why? Well, look at what Paul says. If the gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Because in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Listen, this suffering that Paul is is facing is because people are blind. And this world is saying and rejecting these basic aspects of humanity because they don't see any better. They're blinded by the darkness. So what does this mean for us as believers as we understand the world, those who reject Christ, are blinded by the devil? Well, it helps us set expectations. I think we've been sort of surprised by how fast things have gone. I think part of that is that there has been a movement, particularly in America, that has sought to join together Christianity and the government or the, the country of America. Now, I'm thankful for what God has done in this country, and I praise Him for the freedoms that we have. We were able to meet here today without any harassment, without any police officer checking our credentials at the, door, at the doors. Praise God for that. It is not like that for others in this world. But that also means that there has been hidden behind a shroud of morality, a festering disease of sin that hasn't been called out by the church. And now that cancer is exploding all over this country, and that's why we are where we are today. So we stare at the world gawking with open mouths 
at how far things have come, but the fact is that this is what we should expect. One of the reasons why our scripture reading this morning was from Romans chapter 1 was because Paul talks about what happens. Romans 1 tells us about how there is disordered worship, idolatry, there's disordered sexuality in both heterosexual disorderedness and homosexuality. Both things are equally a result of sin working. There's disordered conduct. And then there becomes disordered relationships where there's slandered, gossip. And then do you notice in that list and that litany of the filth of sin, what does he throw in there? Disobedience to who? Parents. So, Our disobedience, our desire to rebel against the authority of our parents, that is an indication that we are denying basic aspects of humanity when we do that. Every sin is an assault on what we have been created to be. So Paul sums this up in Romans 1.32. That though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they do what? Give approval to those who practice them. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the term that we use today for give approval. Affirm. So here we are in, in our day and age, and the world will not allow us to disagree in fact, it's not even enough that we, they're not going to allow us to disagree. Not only can we just say, well, I'm just going to be neutral about it. No, no. You have to affirm. You have to give approval to these things. That's the world we live in today. That's where the darkness of the world has come out. You either affirm and are accepted or you disagree and you end up getting canceled. That's where we are today. So what we're experiencing today is this blindness. Listen, blind people left without any guidance make a wreck and a mess of things. This world is blinded by the God of this world, by the devil. And what have they done? Made a wreck and a mess of things. So, which brings us to the next thing that Paul points us to. We have to understand the true enemy. This is a hard thing to do. But when someone lashes out against you because you haven't joined them in the flood of debauchery, when they lash out against you because you haven't gotten on board with the current sensibilities of today, they are only doing what the God of this world is telling them to do. They truly do not know any better. And so they ultimately are not the true enemy. Who is? The devil. We have to recognize that the, where our inflamed sensibilities ought to be directed, it is the God of this world. He is our true enemy. It can be easy to look at individuals caught up in this blindness and build animosity toward them. May that never be. What we need to realize is that they are ultimately not the enemy. 
the God of this world who is blinding them down this path is. So what ought we to do, particularly when those in this world lash out like that against us? What does Jesus tell us to do to those who hate us? To those who are our enemies, we are to do what to them? Love them. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So if we know that the world will be blind and will act out of that blindness, and we know why, because the God of this world has blinded them to these things, then how are we to respond? And Paul gives us two ways that we're to respond. The first is our identity must be squarely and completely found in God by beholding God's image in Jesus Christ. We see this, first of all, that we're called to set our mind on the glory of God in Jesus. This is what we recognize. Listen, a veil weighs on the minds of unbelievers. They're blinded. But guess what? We don't have that veil. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If we turn to the Lord, what happens to that veil? It's removed. Hallelujah! When we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so Paul is telling us, based on this, that listen... They're not seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, but you can, so gaze into it. That is what his entire argument is at the end of chapter 3, that we all, with this unveiled face, would behold the glory of the Lord. And then as we behold the glory of the Lord, what happens to us? We're changed into that same image from one degree of glory to the other. This is what John says. We have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is the message that John writes in his epistle that we've heard from Him and proclaimed to you, God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, what are we doing? We're lying. We're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, We have fellowship not just with Him, but with who else? Each other. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. We are to set our mind on the glory of God in Christ. That term in in chapter 3, verse 18, of beholding, has the idea of of looking carefully into. It reminds me of what James says in James chapter 1 where we look into, into the God's Word and it is like a mirror. And it shows us what's wrong with us as we see the glory of God and we, are trans- we seek to change our lives and fix our faces so that they more resemble Christ's. I also think it's important to think about what Christ's glory is. It is infinite. Christ's glory is infinite. That means that you can never exhaust all the intricacies of it. It's like a diamond. A diamond has many different facets. I know when I um, proposed to my wife, I got a diamond. All right, got that much right. (laughs) 
And I remember I ordered it from this website, and she hates it when I say the name of the website because it sounds like I like, bought it off of some guy on the side of the road. It was dirtcheapdiamonds.com, all right? <laughs> I was a senior in college. I had to sell my sound system to afford it. Dirtcheapdiamonds.com seemed good enough for me, all right? And it's, it's been since determined that it was a legitimate diamond, all right? So we're okay. So I, I got, I, you know, I ordered it, and I had it delivered to me at my, um, at my P.O. box when I was in college. I was a senior in college, and I was excited. I was, you know, you get something, and you're tracking it and everything, and it comes in. And so I get it, and I go to my room, and I open it up, and, and it's in this nice, really velvet, you know, ring box or whatever. And I open up the box. Now, the diamond was beautiful, but let me tell you about this box, all right? It had a little light at the top that when you open it up, that light would shine down on that diamond and it would just illuminate all the facets of that diamond. I can't tell you how many guys I said, hey, come in my room, turned off all the lights, opened that up, and there was like a constellation of glory on the ceiling. In fact, when I proposed to Rita, I got down on one knee and she liked the, she liked the ring and she got it, and then she's like, wow, this box is really cool. Like, it was just amazing. And what that showed is that that diamond had all sorts of different facets and different ways. And, and I, would move, I would move the box around and you could see different, different things shining, all these white sparkles in the, in, on the ceiling. I mean, it was amazing. The glory of God is 10 billion times greater than that. And so it is for us. Listen, if you want to know what it means to be a human, look to Christ. Savor His glory. And that glory is good news. The second thing we see is we rejoice in the good news of the glory of Christ. Look at what Paul says. Those who are veiled by the God of this world are not able to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It is good news. You know, it's amazing to me that Whenever you see humanity coming into contact with the glory of God in Scripture, it actually doesn't begin as good news. It's terrifying. Think about what Israel was doing as God's glory was being revealed just a tiny bit. As Moses was on top of the mountain, they were scared to death. When God's holiness was shown to Isaiah in the temple in heaven, What did Isaiah say? I'm ruined. When the disciples were with Jesus on the the Mount of Transfiguration and the veil of His flesh was removed and His glory shone forth, what did they do? They were very afraid and hid themselves. But notice how Paul describes the glory of Christ. It's not a fearful thing. It's good news. gospel of the glory of Christ. Why is God's glory good news? Because for those who by God's grace see the light of His glory, it is transformative. It's good news because it reveals what we should be, and it's good news because it changes us to be what we should be. This was prophesied by Isaiah, Isaiah 41 through 5. Israel had been spending so much time under God's hand of discipline. 
And yet, God writes through Isaiah, listen, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. That she's received from the Lord a hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That is fulfilled in John the Baptist who is speaking of someone who's coming. And then Isaiah speaks of how the, every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough place is plain so that there's no impediment for us to see the glory of the Lord that's revealed. And that has found its expression in Jesus Christ. That is the message of comfort. Comfort, my people. Because there's good news in the glory of God seen in Jesus Christ. So as we set our mind on the glory of God, we rejoice in the good news of the glory of God in Jesus. Then the final thing we see here is that we're to seek meaning for humanity by looking to Jesus. Look at the very last phrase of verse 4. The light, he talks about how the world is blinded to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is what? The image of God. Now, why is that significant? Well, when God created us, how did he create us? In his own image, in the image of God. And the Greek that Paul uses here is almost identical to the Greek used in the Old Testament translation, or the translation of the Old Testament in Greek, in the image of God. Icon ha theu, or icon ta theu. What he is doing here as he points us to this reality is that what are we created to be like? What are we meant to be like? And from the beginning of creation, it has always been that we are created to be like Jesus. He is the expression of the image of God. He's always been the image that, to which we are to look to. Now, as we saw in Romans 1, what is mankind getting further and further away from? The image of Christ. That was written 2,000 years ago. Look at where we are today. Has it gotten any better? No. And as we just mentioned, in 17 years, we've seen things change at breakneck speed. Why? What's the problem? And, and this is where we, we have to recognize the answer. The answer for people who are caught up in this blindness is not found in arguing with them about their choice of lifestyle. Now, I'm not saying we don't call what they're doing sin. But that's not where hope is. Listen, we don't want to make 
and convert people from one human identity to another. What we want to do is we want people to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and be made in His image. That's what we want. So that brings us finally to Paul's final application We find identity in Christ by proclaiming Him. We settle ourselves on who Christ is, and then we proclaim that truth to the world around us. Which means, then, that we first of all do not proclaim ourselves. Notice what Paul says in verse 5. It almost seems surprising. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. Why would he say that? Because we have to understand that the same personhood-denying tendencies that exist in the world that is out there today, they also exist in us. That every time we sin, while the degree may be different, the underlying assumption is the same, that we can define our own humanity on our own terms, not God's. Every sin is a choice to do that. So the reality that that he's calling us to do is we can't let the blindness creep in so we don't proclaim ourselves. See, the true problem is ultimately not heterosexuality versus homosexuality. That's not the true problem. It is not cisgender versus transgender, and it is not pro-life versus pro-choice. We cannot make our heterosexuality, our cisgenderness, or our pro-life views the main thing. That would be proclaiming ourselves. And that's where I feel we've gotten off. We've made it just about that. And while we address those things as they are clearly stated in God's Word as sin, rather, what does Paul proclaim? We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We seek to proclaim Him. Christ is clear on those issues. But the answer is not getting people to capitulate on those issues. The answer is getting them to seek identity in Christ. Goal is not to make people like us. It is to make them like Him. Listen, let us not make our being on the right side of these issues become a means of self-righteousness, that people would be more like us. We want people, we want ourselves to be more like Jesus. And then we serve for Jesus' sake. Look at what Paul says in verse 6, or at the end of verse 5. He proclaims Christ, Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We serve for the sake of Jesus. How did Jesus respond to those who denied some of the most fundamental aspects of humanity? Think about the woman at the well. You want to talk about someone who didn't have respect for marriage. It was her. Several husbands and the person she's with is not her husband. What did Jesus do? He pointed out her sin. But it wasn't enough to get her to change her behavior. He didn't call her to stop being a serial adulterer. He called her to turn to him, 
to ask of Him and find in Him water that provides satisfaction greater than anything she's ever experienced. What does He do to the woman caught in adultery? He forgives her in Him. And then He seeks for her to be transformed. Don't sin any longer, He calls her to. How does he serve his disciples when they are in one breath arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? What does he do? He girds himself with a towel. He gets down on his hands and knees and he washes their feet. How has Jesus served you? He made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. And he was made in the likeness of men. He came in our likeness so that he, being found in the likeness of men, would become obedient unto death, death on a cross. He served us by becoming made in our likeness so that we could have the likeness of God restored in us. That service is how our example of how we are to serve the world around us. And how does that service look primarily? It is done through proclaiming the image of God in Christ. This is how we serve. Look at what he says in verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. As we now see the light, we proclaim to others that they would have that same experience. Our goal is not to keep the world at an enmity with us. Our goal is to have them find peace through Christ and then have peace with us so that we would lovingly welcome them in as our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being made into His image. So, our modern age is facing a great dilemma. Remember what the the blinded person at the very beginning said. What does it even mean to be human? That's the question facing our society today. The world in their blindness has no answer. And that's the reality. They have no answer. So they approach it with an anything goes attitude. That's why they have accepted what they've accepted. Anything goes. Who am I to define humanity for you? But Scripture is clear. God is clear. Our Creator is clear. The Gospel is clear. What does it mean to be human? It means to be like Jesus Christ. This is what Paul calls the 
Ephesian believers to in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at what he says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Boy, it seems like Paul talks about the same stuff a lot, doesn't it? They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This was written 2,000 years ago. It's still happening today. But what does Paul say? This is not the way you learned who? Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after what? The likeness of God. In true righteousness and holiness, it is learning of Christ that we are able to restore our humanity. Who am I? Who are you this morning? Where is your identity settled? And this is where the rubber really meets the road. Are you known as a student? Are you known as a a business person? Are you known as a, a fan of ham and typewriters? Like, what is it that defines who you are? And God's word is abundantly clear. We are to be like Jesus. May we, by God's grace, focus on His glory and being changed more into it. And then may we take this message and call the world, every single one of them that is caught in this darkness, to repent and to find their identity in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your love. We thank You for Your Word. Father, take it and we covered so much here today. May we think about these things and, and consider them. Make us like Jesus. May He be our great identity. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading His precious.